Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. As you are aware, we're on week eight of our series of talks entitled Encounters with Jesus. And over the last couple of months, we've been working through John's Gospel, looking at a whole load of people who met Jesus, and we've been seeing what happened. And as we've looked at their lives, we've been examining some of the deep questions and longings that were in each of their hearts that are kind of universal to all of us, like our search for meaning or justice or satisfaction. And we've been looking at how the Christian faith and Jesus in particular might address what's going on deep in all of our hearts. And the topic for today is truth. How do we know what is true? which in our fake news post-truth age is one of the biggest hot potatoes of them all. Let's just work our way through a few statistics to tee up this topic. They're coming up on the screen behind me. There we are. Before I have even finished speaking this morning, there will be over 2,160 more hours of video footage on YouTube alone and 2.5 million more photos on Facebook and Instagram. On average, 571 new websites are created, get this, every minute, every minute. Over 2 million blog posts are written every single day. In fact, the average social media user's eyes pass over, on average, 285 pieces of content every single day. That's the equivalent to reading 54,000 words a day. That's like a medium-sized novel of news. And yet, how much of it do we trust to be true? Statistics tell us that on average, we can be lied up to 200 times every single day. In fact, dishonesty is so hardwired into us that researchers have shown that from the age of just six months old, babies have the ability to fake cry to lure the attention of an adult. And from the age of just four years old, 90% of children have firmly grasped the art of lying. As adults, stats vary on this, but I found one piece of research that suggested on average, as adults, we lie three times every 10 minutes. Just extraordinary. That means on average there will be nine lies during this sermon alone. So if I preach for less, this sermon will be more truthful. How about that? So let's stand as we close in prayer. No, 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 no. (laughs) Too bad for you, I put a few thoughts down on paper. But given all of that, how on earth can we trust anything to be true? That is what we are looking at today. And the springboard for grappling with this subject is the story of Jesus' encounter with Pontius Pilate, which we can read about in John chapters 18 and 19. If you have a Bible, I would love you to turn there, so please do that. (coughs) I hear no rustling at all, so I presume you're going to be reliant on the screen. There we go. And let's read from chapter 18 and verse 28. This is what it says. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he weren't a criminal, they replied, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? 
Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. Now, skipping down to chapter 19, verse 7. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have power to either free or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it weren't given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. So how on earth do we ever discover what is true? And given we're in church and talking about faith, how can I have any confidence in the claims of Jesus that he was and is the Son of God? Well, I want to simplify this topic down uh, dramatically. I think it's first uh, good to acknowledge that there's no evidence at all that Pontius Pilate ever discovers truth. Uh, so we have to learn from his mistakes rather than his successes. But put simply, I think there are three different approaches to discovering truth, and I want to take them each in turn. And the first is this. How do we find truth answered by believing in not very much at all? Let me explain it this way. One of the most dominant cultural narratives, particularly in the Western world, goes something like this, and it's coming up on the screen behind me. We can't know anything unless you can prove it scientifically. Science is based on evidence, religion on faith. Therefore, the burden of proof is on the believer to come up with evidence that God exists. And because no one has ever been able to do that, it's almost certain God can't be real. Uh, this is a worldview sometimes called strong rationalism, kind of so common now, it kind of washes over us kind of got a bit boring. But to be honest, there's one particular problem with this paradigm, if you think about it, and it is this. It fails its own standard. How can you prove that this is true? Answer, you can't. How can you prove that you can't know anything unless you have empirical proof? You just can't do that. And this is probably one of the main reasons that some of the best-selling strong rationalist books on atheism the likes of The God Delusion by Dawkins, God is Not Great by Hitchens, The End of Faith by Sam Harris, why they have fed more poorly in the more scholarly journals. More than that, there are a whole load of quite brilliant scientists, researchers, professors who have all argued, the likes of Thomas Nagel, not a believer at all, Wittgenstein, Heidegger, Morris Merleau-Ponty, all these and many more have said, they've all argued that all reasoning, all conclusions that we come to are all based on prior faith assumptions to which we did not reason. Put simply, everybody but everybody has faith. Where is your place? Let me try and put it like this. One of the reasons I have faith in God is because of what I might call cosmic wonder. The universe is so spectacular, I think there must be a creator behind it. Coming up on the screen are a few images of the universe of which we are a teeny tiny part. I think they are just utterly spectacular. Some of you may have heard of a scientist called Sir Roger Penrose. He worked alongside Professor Stephen Hawking, developed much of our modern-day understanding of black holes. He estimated that the chances of the universe just coming into existence is around about 1 in 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. 
To put that in context, that is a number so large, it has more zeros on the end of it than the total number of particles in the entire universe. In other words, when it comes to just this question, the door of all things, either my faith is placed in God or it is placed in something that science cannot explain, that is utterly unlikely. Everybody has faith. Where is yours placed? More than that, if that statement I read is true, that you can't believe in anything unless you can empirically prove it, how on earth do you and I live a normal life? You see, all of us go through our daily lives with a whole load of faith assumptions about stuff that we cannot empirically prove. Let me give you a couple of examples. Love. Love. You know, you cannot and never will be able to, in my opinion, put love in a test tube. I cannot prove scientifically that my children love me. But I am yet to meet a parent that thinks their children's love for them is just a load of neurons firing in their brain, simply a physical or chemical reaction. We have this deep intuition somehow. No, love is more than that, but we can't prove it. Another example, human rights. Human rights. It is impossible to prove that human beings have certain inalienable rights. And particularly if we have an evolutionary worldview, as most people in the Western world do, where the strong end up eating the weak, it is even harder to prove empirically that, yeah, all human beings have equal rights. They have certain inalienable rights. You can't prove it. And yet we have this deep intuition, but no, they do. That's why we read stories about an innocent man and an unjust trial being condemned to death. We think there's something wrong about this, but we cannot empirically prove it. Everybody, but everybody, but everybody has faith, even just to get through life. But of course, we live in a society that has tried to separate critical thinking and rational thought from faith, which means two things. Firstly, if we only believe in things that we can empirically prove, we won't believe in that much at all. But secondly, actually, for the whole vast array of things that require faith, we've just stopped thinking critically about them. We've just stopped thinking. That is Pontius Pilate's first mistake never bothers to explore further. Let's just remind ourselves of the context. In many ways, I have sympathy for Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor of the Roman province of Judea, right on the fringes of the Roman Empire. He had wealth, he had power, he had influence. Secular history reports that he had married Caesar's granddaughter. So he had married into the most influential dynasty on earth at this point in history. And he lived in a culture that believed in hundreds and hundreds of gods and goddesses, but there were 12 primary Roman gods and goddesses. There's a beautiful painting of Viani uh, coming up, depicting some of the gods on Mount Olympus, gods of rage, gods of power, gods of strength. That is the context. And so imagine the scenario. Pilate is sitting in his pomp and splendor, and a carpenter from Nazareth is brought before him. He has no wealth. He has no influence. All his followers have deserted him. His name is Jesus. There are very few historical descriptions of the physical appearance of Jesus. That's interesting in and of itself. But one of them comes from the second century, a guy called Celsus. No idea if it's true. He wasn't a fan of Christianity, but he described Jesus as ugly and short. So imagine Pilate's there in his glory and this ugly short dude is brought before him and he is supposed to believe that not only is this ugly short guy a mighty king, but he might even be divine. Utterly ridiculous. Totally implausible. In fact, when Pilate says, chapter 18 and verse 37, are you a king? Or chapter 19 and verse 5, behold the man. The emphasis in the Greek is mocking. 
It is taunting. It is full of contempt and ridicule. This guy is not even divine. He's not even a mighty king. Utterly ridiculous. And he never bothers to explore further. And Pilate ends up being guilty of what psychologists call the confirmation bias. Now, you probably have heard of it. Essentially, what it means is this. We all have our way of seeing the world. We all have our worldview, our cultural lenses, so to speak. And so all we end up doing is going in search of information that confirms our way of seeing the world. And we never bother to grapple with information that challenges our thinking. And we end up missing crucial information as a result. That's the confirmation bias. I want to show you a short video to illustrate this. It is very cheesy, I'm afraid to say. But it is sometimes used in educational circles to illustrate the confirmation bias. We're going to stop it halfway through. But it's basically a very cheesy mock-up of the denouement of a murder mystery scene. Let's play the first half of the video now. Clearly, somebody in this room murdered Lord Smythe, who, at precisely 3.34 this afternoon, was brutally bludgeoned to death with a blunt instrument. I want each of you to tell me your whereabouts at precisely the time that this dastardly deed took place. I was polishing the brass in the master bedroom. I was buttering his lordship's scones below stairs, sir. Why, I was planting my petunias in the potting shed. Constable, arrest Lady Smythe. But, but how did you know? Madam, as any horticulturist will tell you, one does not plant petunias until May is out. Take her away. Sorry, madam. It's just a matter of observation. The real question is how observant were you? Okay, let's pause it there. Now, hands up if you noticed any changes in that 50-second clip. Hands up. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten. Less than... That's extraordinary. Wow. Okay, what we're going to do is we're now going to play the very same clip from a different camera angle. Here is what really happened. Let's play the rest of the clip. Uh, Clearly, somebody in this room murdered Lord Smythe, who, at precisely 3.34 this afternoon, was brutally bludgeoned to death with a blunt instrument. I want each of you to tell me your whereabouts at precisely the time that this dastardly deed took place. I was polishing the brass in the master bedroom. I was buttering his lordship's scones below stairs, sir. I was planting my petunias in the potting shed. Constable, arrest Lady Smythe. Now, what we've learned there is a couple of things. Firstly, none of you should ever apply for a job in the police service. <laughs> or as a pilot or a surgeon or anything that involves your eyes. Secondly, that's the confirmation bias in action. You see, we all have our way of seeing the world. I know how murder mysteries work. And when our attention is fixed in one place, we can miss crucial pieces of evidence unfolding before our very eyes. That is Pontius Pilate. He's there in his palace in all his glory thinking, I know what gods are like. They sit up in the clouds firing lightning bolts. This short, ugly dude, there's no way that he is divine. There's no way that he's God. And he never bothers to explore further. So many people approach truth this way. You know, I hear people say things like, Miracles were impossible. Prayer can't be proven. I won't believe in anything unless you can prove it empirically. And Jesus basically has a jab at Pontius Pilate for that kind of thinking. 
So Pilate says to him, are you a king? And Jesus kind of retorts. He says, is that your own idea? Or did somebody else tell you about me? Put in 21st century English, this is the Tilsley translation of the Bible, which is a bit blasphemous, but work with me on this. If I hear anyone who says, I won't believe in anything unless you can empirically prove it, here's what I think Jesus might say. Did Richard Dawkins tell you that? Or have you done some thinking on this yourself? Because if you have, you'll know that it takes a whole load of faith to get to that position. Where is your faith placed? And if you are a follower of Jesus, if you would describe yourself as a person of faith, we don't get off easily here either, because we can be equally guilty of the confirmation bias. You know, I have been in church now for over three decades of my life. You know, I worked out in preparing this talk, I have probably heard David Stroud preach over 500 times. Oh my goodness me. I was coming out of Waterloo Station when I was 17. We've all been there. We've all been there. We've heard the songs. We've heard the talks. And the danger is we just put God and Jesus and church in our nice little box and we stop thinking. We never bother exploring further. If you are a person of faith, if you describe yourself as a follower of Jesus, can I ask you a provocative question that I've been asking myself as I have been preparing this talk? If this God stuff is real, if it's true, then there is always more to know about an unknowable God. So let me ask you this. When was the last time you discovered something new about God? When was the last time something about the life of Jesus challenged your thinking or the way that you live? When was the last time that you were reading the Bible and something surprised or provoked you? When was the last time your faith felt new and fresh and vibrant? If you cannot answer that question or you don't remember, there is a very good chance that you are going through the motions and you have just stopped thinking. And maybe, 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 there could be cosmic wonder unfolding right before our very eyes and we miss it because it does not conform to what we expect. You know, in three decades of being in church, I've known a lot of people kind of wander away from the whole faith thing. They once stood in church, arms raised, worshipping God. Now, not so much, not so much. Over 30 years, I am yet to meet a single person whose reason for doing that was something like this. You know what, Andy? I have finally discovered what happened to the body of Jesus after his death. I can prove the resurrection is a hoax. It's all a sham. I can bring Christianity to its knees. I'm walking away. Never heard anything like that. But I have heard a number of people say things like this, just wasn't feeling it. Got a bit bored of the talks and the songs. Now suffering in my world, and I can't believe God would do that. I mean, I know there's suffering in the Bible, and even though this Jesus guy suffered, we just read about it, but no, God can't, can't be real. I rely on other people's thinking. And to a greater or lesser extent, they just stop thinking. End up walking away. You know, whether you are exploring faith for the first time, or you have been a Christian for a hundred years, or anything in between, Maybe even today, God, so to speak, just like Pontius Pilate, could be right in front of us and we can miss him. We can miss cosmic wonder because it doesn't conform to what we expect. The whole faith deal, the whole Christianity deal, it is for thinkers. It's for thinkers. And the life of Pontius Pilate is a challenge to all of us, whether you have faith or not, to look more closely at the person of Jesus. Maybe even today you will discover something new. How do we discover truth? Option one is I only believe in stuff that I can empirically prove. You won't find much truth there at all, and you'll need faith at everything else. I'm not sure that works. So if option one is by not believing in very much, option two in terms of discovering truth, put very, very simply, 
is this. If there's not truth in a little place, maybe there's just truth everywhere. I'm just going to believe in everything, so to speak. And to illustrate this, I want to draw on one of the most controversial moments in the last few years. More controversial, in my opinion, than the Trump presidency. More controversial than the European referendum. I am, of course, talking about the colour of the dress. Now, if you miss this phenomenon a couple of years ago, the whole world seemed to get caught up in this. Half the world seemed to think this dress is blue and black. The other half seemed to think this dress is white and gold. Now, I don't want to open the door to past pain and disagreement, but I am interested in what you think. So stand by your convictions. If you think this dress is blue and black, pop up your hand and hold it proudly in the air. There we go. My people, my people. Jesus is so proud of you. Jesus thinks it's blue and black as well. Okay, hands down. Okay, now stand by your convictions. If you think this dress is white and gold, pop up your hand and hold it. Oh my goodness. This is a sick church. <laughs> Prayer team, look around. These guys need serious help. Okay, hands down. Now that is how many people view truth. Bear with me, great link coming up. Here's what people often say. Oh, Jesus, he's a great guy. Shame he died, but I love his teaching. And it's great that you believe that he's God. But he's not God for me. He's God for you, but he's not God for me. He's blue and black for you, but he's white and gold for me. And to be honest, for others, he might be a different colour. To others, he's orange and purple. To others, he's magenta and brown. You know, haven't we all got a little bit of truth? Isn't there just truth everywhere? And one of the overused analogies that you may have heard of goes something like this. Imagine, if you will, a mountain. And truth, or God, is at the top of the mountain. Here's what some people argue. Well, at one side of the mountain, there's a Muslim and he's making his way up and he can't see anybody else and he's convinced I'm the one who's found truth. And bless him, what he doesn't realise is a few miles around the side of the mountain, there's a Christian making his way up and he's convinced, no, I'm the one that's found truth. On oh, the poor Christian. I mean, he doesn't realise a few miles further on there's a Hindu and then a Buddhist. And they're all finding their way to truth, but they're all finding their way to the same thing at the end of the day. Everyone's got a little bit of truth, haven't they? This is a perspective called relativism. And it sounds so inclusive. It sounds so accepting. It sounds so loving. But there are a couple of problems with it. And the first is purely logical. It is purely logical. You see, one of the obvious questions to ask somebody who has this worldview is this. Where are you watching this from? Where are you watching this from? Often people will say, well, I'm watching it from the top. But, but you said God and truth was at the top. Oh, well, I'm watching it from a long way away. And if you push and if you probe, you will help them see the logical implications of their worldview, which is this. What they are saying is that they have managed to do what no Christian, Hindu or Muslim has ever managed to do. They have risen above their own culture. They have risen above truth and God itself. And only they can see the big picture and nobody else can. Everybody else has got a little bit of the truth, but I can see everyone's got a bit of the truth. I'm the one with the big picture and nobody else has got that. It's another exclusive faith claim along with all the others, and it does not work. The second problem with relativism and our, this approach to truth is this. It only works when you hold the truth at arm's length. When you think truth doesn't really affect me personally, let's just keep it all at a distance. Did you notice in the story how many times Pontius Pilate goes back to the Jews and he says, no, this is your problem, not mine. You, you charge him, you deal with him, not my problem. He's blue and black to you. He's white and gold to me. I mean, let's just keep Jesus far away from me. He even, as I'm sure you are aware, ends up washing his hands of the whole affair. 
So many people approach truth like that. Let's just keep it at arm's length. Blue and black for you, white and gold for me. The problem is we all care way more deeply about truth than that. And when the truth affects us up close, suddenly we realize how much we want to know what is true. Silly example. If I went up to Rich Butt on the front row now and punched him in the face, firstly, he'd crush me in a fight. <laughs> but secondly, in that moment, what he does not want is a philosophical debate about what is true. Is it right or wrong for me to be punched in the face by Andy? Maybe it's true for Andy and not true for me. No, no, no. When the truth gets up close and personal and affects us personally, he wants there to be something to be true that says that is wrong and he deserves retribution there and then. Another more sobering example would be death. Would be death. Now, I remember at school having these wonderful distance debates about death, the meaning of life, what happens when we die, is there an afterlife? And it's quite engaging if you have the discussion from a distance. But of course, none of us can hold death at arm's length indefinitely. For every single person, there comes a moment when we are faced with our own mortality or that of those we love. And when death comes close, it's hard to have a philosophical debate out there about what is true. We are haunted by deep questions. Is this the end? Where is hope? What is true? Where is God? When you hold truth at a distance, it's not going to work forever. And there is not a single person in this room that wants to believe in something that turns out not to be true. In which case, we only have one other option. If option one, when it comes to truth, is believing in not very much at all and faith for everything else, I'm not sure that works. If option two is believing in everything, I'm not sure that really works either. Only when we hold it at arm's length, then there's only one other option, and it is this. We have to start believing in something. We have to start believing in something. And this is where it gets deeply uncomfortable for all of us. Because the moment we start believing in something, that's the moment we have to change our lives. That's the moment we have to change our lives. I want to ask you a couple of questions to illustrate this. You need to help me out by just playing along and raising your hands if you agree. Okay. If you think it is a right and a good and maybe even an important thing to look after our world and care for the environment, please raise your hand in the air right now. Is it a good and a right and important thing to care for our world, look after the environment? Hands up. Okay, for the tape, pretty much every hand is raised, hands down. Okay, hands up if you think, yeah, recycling, picking up litter, yeah, that's a couple of good ways to care for the environment. Not the only way, not maybe even the most important way, but yeah, recycling, that's a good thing to do. That can care for our environment. Hands up. Again, for the tape, pretty much every hand is raised, hands down. Okay, hands up if you always pick up litter, even if you didn't drop it and you recycle 100% of everything that you could recycle, hands up. Isn't that interesting? As far as I can tell, not a single hand is raised. But you just said it's important to care for the environment. Is it that you don't really care? You just said recycling was a good and important thing to do. Deep down, do you not believe it? What's going on, guys? What do you believe? Sorry for having to go. <laughs> What I am doing here is creating what psychologists call cognitive dissonance, which is this, when there is a difference between what I believe, my thoughts, and the way that I behave. You see, the moment I get up to truth, the moment I get close to, oh, our environment, we need to care for it, and recycling is an important way of doing that. Picking up litter, a good way to care for our world. I start to feel uncomfortable. Why? Because I realize I don't do all that I could. 
And therefore, I'm going to have to change my life by giving up more of my precious time to recycle more. When you get close to the truth, it gets uncomfortable. And so what do most of us, including myself, do? We revert to options one or two. We start creating distance from the issue. Well, there are others who could do more. I mean, I probably do more than the average person. Life's so busy, there are far more important things that I need to get to, and there are other ways to care for the environment. Or we start rationalising it. Well, I'm not sure the most important thing to do to care for our world and look after future generations is recycling. There are better ways to look after climate change and things like that. Or most commonly of all, we just don't think about it. We just stop thinking. Life's so busy. Time is so precious. We fill our minds with lots of other things to appease our conscience. When there is a difference between our thoughts and our behaviour, when you get up close to the truth, it makes us deeply uncomfortable because we realise we have to change our lives. Faith and Jesus work exactly the same way. You know, I found it utterly fascinating. Pontius Pilate, chapter 19 and verse 7, when he discovers that Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God, we're told that what? He is even more afraid. It's utterly fascinating. He's mocking Jesus a few verses earlier. You, God, impossible. And yet just a few verses later, why? Why the fear? Why would he be scared? Maybe he has got close enough to Jesus to begin to contemplate the implications if this guy is who he says he is. I'm going to have to start following a king who's not Caesar. That has serious implications for my money and my palace and my wife and my life. When we get close to Jesus, it works exactly the same way. Because if you do it right, you begin to realize, oh, I need to lay down my kingdom for his. That means my attitude to money might have to change. Maybe my attitude to how I give my time to others needs to change. When you get close to Jesus, often it gets very uncomfortable indeed. As the mystic Richard Raw says, before the truth sets you free, it tends to make you miserable because you realize your life has to change. And so what do we do? We revert to options one or two. Well, you know, how does Andy know everything? You know, I'll, I'll take this from his talk, but not that. That bit about Jesus changing my life, that's nice. But the words Jesus said about giving your money to those in need, don't like that so much. We'll just not think about that. We just create distance. We just stop thinking. We think, oh, how do you really ever know? When you get close to Jesus, just like with Pilate, you start getting uncomfortable. And if you really want to find truth, you have to work through that if you're going to believe in something. So here's a question. Why believe in Jesus? In the search for truth, why start with him? Why, why start with Jesus? Why not look somewhere else? Here, I think, is the number one reason, one of the most unique claims of the Christian faith, and it is this. Jesus Christ is the only person who has ever lived ever, who not only claimed to be truth itself, but who claimed to be God himself and got millions of people to believe in him. No one else has ever managed that. I mean, if you think about it, Jesus even got his friends and family to believe that he was and is divine. That's a pretty impressive feat if you think about it. I mean, imagine next Sunday, you come to church, and I start dropping a few hints. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Christchurch, London. The Lord is here. And it's me. What do you think? You know, church would be pretty empty the following week. You think, no, we know you. We know your weaknesses. We know your... There's no way you could be God. Joy Ball, she could possibly be divine. Everyone here, she's the most likely, definitely not me. 
And Jesus got his own friends and family to believe in his divinity. No other founder of any other world religion ever managed that. Muhammad, Buddha, none of them. And yet, and yet, and yet, in 33 AD, when previously doubting Thomas fell at the feet of the resurrected Lord Jesus and worshipped him saying, my Lord and my God, Jesus told him off for being so slow to believe the truth. Jesus made outlandish claims like, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets to God except through me. To Pilate, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. In other words, what Jesus is claiming is this. If you want to discover truth, it is not found in a load of intellectual propositions out there. It is found only and exclusively through relationship with him. How do you find truth? It is through Jesus Christ. And so here, therefore, is the $64 billion question. How can I have any confidence that's the case? How can I have any sense of assurance that you can find truth through the person of Jesus? Well, I want to bring this into the land with an illustration that many of you may have heard before. I'm going to expand on it in a bit. No apologies for repetition because I think it's really helpful. Many of you will be aware that uh, one of the things we run at Christchurch is the Alpha Course, which is a quite brilliant introduction to the Christian faith and the claims of Jesus. This spring, we had our biggest ever Alpha Course. We've got another couple starting in a couple of weeks' time. The testimonies that people were sharing on stage about how Jesus has changed their life should be motivation enough for us all to invite our friends, our colleagues, our neighbours. Let's pack the next one out. And if you've not done it, I highly recommend it to you. Go along, meet some nice new people, watch a talk, have a discussion, come to whatever conclusion that you want. Plug over. Now, back in the day when we ran Alpha, at the end of the course, we would often dish out a questionnaire to ask people, what did you think of the Alpha course? And one of the questions we asked was this one coming up on the screen behind me. At the start of the Alpha course, would you have described yourself as a Christian? Here are some of the responses. Yes, but without any real experience of a relationship with God. Sort of, possibly, not sure, anybody commas, Christian. Yes, though looking back, possibly no, no, a semi-Christian. Now, I totally understand why people might respond to that question in that way. But I just want you to imagine at the end of the service today, if you went up to lovely Lucy, married to Rich on the front row, if you went up to Lucy and said, Lucy, are you married? Lucy, are you married? Imagine if her response was, yes, but without any real experience of a relationship. <laughs> like, oh, that's so sad. Lucy, are you married? Sort of, possibly. You know, Andy, I'm not actually sure. Lucy, are you married? Well, Andy, I'm, I'm married. <laughs> awkward, awkward. Lucy, are you married? Yes. Though looking back, possibly no. Lucy, are you married? Well, I'm, I'm semi-married. Open to more husbands, let's hope not. Now, the reason we laugh is we know there is truth in answer to that question. Are you married or not? There is truth to be discovered. It is exactly the same with finding truth through Jesus Christ. How do we know that I am married. How do I know there's truth to be found in Jesus? Number one, how do I know I'm married? An event took place. An event took place. Ten years ago this year, this happened. Ta-da! There we go. Joy's aged a bit, but as you can see, it's still very much me. <laughs> Same with the Christian. How do I know? How can I have confidence that truth is to be found in and through Jesus? An event took place. His life and death were attested to even by secular historians. And the evidence for his resurrection I find utterly compelling. How else otherwise did this fledgling faith on the brink of being squashed by Rome change all of history? 
How can I have confidence that truth is to be found through Jesus? An event took place. I can look into it. Secondly, how can I have confidence I found truth? How do I know that I am married? Secondly, there is a document that can be trusted. On the screen behind me is coming up a picture of my wedding certificate. 25th of August, 2007, Andrew James Tilsley married Joy Francis Margaret Friel. She'll kill me for mentioning her middle names. Don't tell her I told you that. Now, this is legally binding and attested to by witnesses. I can trust this. In the same way, how do I discover truth? I have a document that I can trust. If you look at a discipline called textual criticism, there are scientists, professors, those who know way more than me, will say the accounts of Jesus, the New Testament, it is way more historically reliable than a whole load of books like Caesar's Gallic Wars, Thucydides, Tacitus, Livy's Roman history, history that we take for granted. You can rely on this book. More than that, Jesus said this whole book is basically a story about him. He described this book as truth. Now, yes, you have to interpret it carefully. You have to study it hard because there are even Christians who take it out of context and do untold damage. But let's not make Pontius Pilate's mistake. Maybe the equivalent of a short, ugly dude is standing right in front of us and we dismiss it because it doesn't conform to what we expect. If you want to discover something new about God, if you want to find real truth, study the book, read the book, love the book. There's a document that can be trusted. Thirdly and finally, how do I know I'm married? An event took place. Document that I can trust. But most obviously of all, there is an experience of a relationship. You know, I cannot prove to you scientifically, empirically, that I am married. Maybe Joy is a brilliantly programmed robot. Maybe she is a computer chip planted in my brain. Maybe the day was just a, attended by a whole load of actors and actresses. Maybe she's a hologram, a figment of my imagination, a fantasy. Can't prove it, but you know what? Ten years of living with her, I think I'm married, I really do. <laughs> There's an experience. There's an experience. It's exactly the same with following Jesus. If I get up close to Jesus, maybe it makes me uncomfortable. But if I work through that and lay down my kingdom to follow him, the Bible says I get filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a number of roles of the Holy Spirit. There's a slide coming up listing them. You don't need to read them all. He refreshes us. He gives us guidance. He gives us wisdom. He gives us faith. He gives us gifts. And this is open to us every single day. You can receive more of this today if you would like. But one of the things the Bible says of the roles of the Holy Spirit, Romans 8:16, is the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Something happens in here whereby I just know my heavenly daddy loves me and I can enjoy relationship with him. Something very similar in 1 John chapter 4. This is how we know by the spirit he gave. On the screen behind me is coming up a picture of Prince Charles. Don't know whether you know his full title. Let me read it to you. He is his royal highness, the Prince of Wales, the Duke of Cornwall, the Duke of Rothesay, the Earl of Carrick, Earl of Chester, Baron of Renfrew. Lord of the Isles, Prince and Great Steward of Scotland, Royal Knight Companion of the Most Noble Order of the Garter, Extra Knight of the Most Ancient and Most Noble Order of the Thistle, Grand Master and Principal Knight and Grand Cross of the Most Honourable Order of the Bath, Member of the Order of Merit, Knight of the Order of Australia, Companion of the Queen's Service Order, Member of Her Majesty's Most Honourable Privy Council, Aide de Camp to Her Majesty. What a title. What a name. But I am guessing that William and Harry just call him Dad. That's the kind of access that we have to God. How do we discover truth? 
It's not just a load of intellectual propositions out there about God. We can know him personally in here. Have you discovered that? Do you hunger for more of that? How do I know I've found truth through Jesus Christ? There's an event. I've looked into it. I've become convinced. There's a document that we can trust that is reliable. And there is an experience that we can enjoy. So what are you going to do in the search for truth? Believe in not very much. Leave faith for everything else. Believe in everything. Keep the truth at arm's length. Or are you going to work through the discomfort and believe in something? Maybe the band want to come up and I want to finish by addressing one question, which is this. Some of you might justifiably say, Andy, what you're basically saying is this, that you can know exclusive truth. What you are saying is you are right and everybody else is wrong. That sounds really arrogant. That sounds really narrow-minded. I'm not sure I want to have anything to do with something like that. And of course, on one level, maybe you're right. You, I could answer this in about an hour, but let me just say one thing. It does sound exclusive. Jesus made some exclusive claims. You don't get to God but through me. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. But one of the most beautiful paradoxes about the Christian faith is this, that while it sounds exclusive, the path to Jesus Christ is one of the utmost humility. Actually, if you have found a Christian that is riddled with pride and arrogance, they are not close enough to Jesus. Actually, when you start to follow Jesus, you realize I don't have all the answers. I haven't figured it all out. I make mistakes the whole time. But I found one who does and has. And so I just point to him. Yes, it sounds exclusive. But the Christian faith is the most inclusive, exclusive truth in all of history. Anyone is welcome, however broken, however mistake-filled. And I love the beauty of that paradox. Sounds exclusive. But actually, none of us have got it figured out. But we've met one who has and does. Why don't we all stand to our feet? In a moment, I'm going to come back and close our time with prayer. But I want to remind you that at the end of the service today, there is a prayer team that is available. And one of the things you might want prayer for is a fresh experience of God's Holy Spirit. Is your faith dry? Do you really want to know more of God? Do you want to explore more of what he has for you? Come get prayer. You can discover again new expressions of who God is and how much he loves you. And whether you are a person of faith or not, I want to encourage you as we sing to ask God a brave question. God, if you are there, God, if you are there, would you reveal more of yourself to me right now? Amen. Why don't you pray that? For now, let's lift our eyes to the person of Jesus. Let's worship him. And I'll close in a few moments' time. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.